this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, Brother Man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the original Long Island Iced B himself, Benny Scala. Benny, baseball playoffs around the corner. How are you feeling? Yeah, Dan, the, the greatest line in the history of television was Steve Urkel saying to the Winslows, uh, I I give good homage. No, I, I give homage to good fromage. I botched it. But yeah, best line ever. So I'm I'm paying homage to the the Baltimore Orioles for winning the AL East, and uh, they'll be taking on the Texas Rangers in the ALDS. And while we're on the subject of baseball, I would not be journalistically responsible if I didn't give a huge thumbs down to my hometown, uh, not really my hometown, but uh, location-wise hometown, Tampa Bay Rays. So they got swept by the Rangers at home at two straight, and that's bad enough. But what's even worse is that the last time a, a postseason game was played with fewer heinies in the seats, uh, Joe Jackson was playing in it. And we're, we're not talking about stepping out Joe Jackson. We're talking about shoeless Joe Jackson. And lowest attendance since 1918, they said. Also, interestingly enough, uh, they said in all <clears> – excuse me – in. Uh, all sports, baseball, basketball, football, going back to the turn of the century when we were playing championships in the early 1900s, they said there have been 200 and uh, was it 245 times there's been at least four series happening at the same time, and this is the first time ever in American sports history that all the series ended in sweeps at the same time. That's historic. So, yes, sir. Yeah. For you think football, baseball, first time. There's ever been four series happening at the same time, and they've all ended in sweeps. So we, we knew who, uh, what do they say, separate the men from the boys, right? Weep from the chat. There you go. But um, before we get too too far off topic on baseball, I know you and I could talk about that forever. Benny, we got uh, another great show for us, and we we talk a lot about we, – we talked about sports. We talked about numbers. Uh, we really have some interesting facts coming our way today. So I want to tell everybody who the uh, third person joining us this evening is. Absolutely. Uh, I do believe that the next hour will be both interesting and entertaining. And our guest is not only written for our, our uh, beloved wrestling magazines, he's also had a very successful career as a musician. He's also a diehard Mets fan, but, you know, none of us are perfect. Uh, and I'm the perfect, perfect example of imperfection. So with us tonight is the host of the wonderful Outdated Wrestling Hour podcast, Mr. Bob Smith. Bob, welcome to Dan and Benny in the ring. Well, thank you, guys. And listen, you can you can dump on my Mets all you want because uh, I I am so upset. I just gave up my season ticket package for next year. Oh, so, no. so so Bucks show what they're going. Yes or no? Good move or not? That's a tough one. Um, no, of course not. Buck Showalter can out umpire the umpires. He's one of the smartest baseball men there are out there. If you're looking for a nuts and bolts guy, he knows everything. He knows every rule. He, he's a lifetime in the game. I, ju I just think, you know, everybody cheered when Steve Cohen took over as the owner, but I think it, it we went from one dumpster fire to another, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. 
they can spend all the money they want, but that takes more than that to build a winner. So absolutely, they they will win again someday, but I don't think it's anytime soon. Well, you're not kidding. No, money doesn't uh, take a winner because what the the four the, the four biggest payrolls in baseball didn't make the playoffs this year. That's or three exactly of the top. Right. Was it four of the top five or the Crazy. top four? Yeah. Um, I, even in this past offseason, I thought they spent poorly. You know, the the combined ages of you know the the two top starters as the season began was 81 years old or something like that. It's it Yikes. was just it was a calculated risk that really didn't pay off. You know, they're not athletic enough. The Mets need to be more athletic and uh, a little younger, better. Their pitching was abysmal. The worst bullpen I thought in, in, in MLB. It was just every game was the same. And and the last three months of the season, we were forced to watch like four A players replace the major leaguers and. I didn't appreciate that either. And as a consumer, I said, sayonara, maybe I'll see you again someday. Sure. You know, because it, honestly, I feel a little bit ripped off. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not so much that they tore the team down. I understand that. If they want to do a rebuild. It's fine. But they didn't offer a major league product the last three months of the season. And at $75 a ticket average I was paying, that's a little bit too, not to Crazy. my liking. You know? Yeah. You know? I mean, you knew, you knew when you went to the ballpark that, that the odds were stacked against the team. They had literally no bullpen. Right. The, the Mets had this habit of signing guys who had been released by other teams and putting them directly on the MLB roster. I've never seen anything like it. You know, <laughs> another team said, you're not good enough to be in our organization. He goes, well, you'll be perfect for our bullpen. How? Yeah. Right. Well, they were looking for, as Billy Eppler, who, by the way, resigned today. Yeah, resigned. yeah, I saw that. Um, as he used to say, well, we're looking for relievers who are optionable. Well, shouldn't you look for relievers who are good? You know, I, I'll just leave it at that. Well, that was the problem. They we watched. What was that? Uh, was that movie Moneyball? They watched. He watched Moneyball on the uh, on the plane ride to the first season meeting and decided <laughs> to put together Island of Misfit toys and forgot you actually have the right have to have the right misfits. <laughs> that, that, I like that. That's that's a good one. <laughs> but you know, like again, we get sidetracked with baseball. Seems to happen a lot on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's fine. Fine with me. I'm a I'm a <laughs> lifelong MLB fan, and I I will say I'm rooting for the Orioles in the uh, postseason. Me too. I really am. I think your yeah. fans have suffered long enough. Yes, sir. Agree. Yeah, it, it's it's good to see you know number one because you know you saw it a little bit last year and then this year. I mean, two years ago they lost 110 games, and you know you you build the best farm system in baseball a couple years in a row. Uh, I, looking up. I mean, I, Benny and I were talking about it the other day. You know, uh, Holiday just won Minor Leaguer of the Year, and he's a shortstop. And the Orioles' starting shortstop is going to be AL Rookie of the Year. So, I mean, you've got mm-hmm. future depth across the infield right there that you can work with. It's good. It's going to be great. And like you talked about with the bullpen, I mean, the Orioles had some of the better relievers in baseball over the last few months. So, unfortunately, uh the mountain, they announced he's going to get Tommy John, so he'll probably miss next year too. But he he did sign on for a, a, a year past that, 2025-26 season. So Orioles, uh, the Orioles have a bright future, which is nice. It's not something I've been able to say as an Orioles fan very often. So you know what I like about the Orioles in the last several seasons, they have built slowly and patiently. A Santander, you know, comes on the mm. scene. A Mullins comes on the scene. Now that you know, your amazing catcher came on the scene last year. I mean, it's just piece by piece, brick by brick, and now you got a good team. Yeah, and you have to be patient to build it that way. Well, and and the fact that of their of their 
key starters, seven of nine of their key starters are under 26. So, oh, that's so good. Yeah. You know, you've got yeah. you've got such a a good young core, like 22, 23 year old all stars. That's that's great stuff. You know, you know and, and it does my heart good. Is it like a lifelong baseball fan like Bob? I mean, back in the day, you know, people talk about the Yankee Red Sox rivalry rivalry. When I was younger, we never talked about the Red Sox. It was the Orioles that we feared because they were always better. I mean, for a long time, they were better than us. Right. Well, you had the run in the 70s, you know, the 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 60, 60 between like 66 and 74 Maybe maybe that eight year period, especially 68 to 72, that dynasty statistically is one of the best baseball teams yeah. ever assembled that when mm-hmm. you know, the Orioles went as a reason they went to what four World Series in six years. So, damn Mets. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, I grew up watching that Oriole team and they were, you know, the Robinsons and Belanger and Davey Johnson and that pitching staff. The one year with the 420 game winners. I mean, yeah. come on, that's, that's legendary stuff. Right that's there. unreal. That'll never happen again. Oh, no. That'll never come close never. to happening. No. Yeah. Never. I mean, no. not not just four 20 game winners, but four four multi like you know, a, a what damn near a hundred complete games between the four of them. Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah. nobody pitches a complete game anymore. I love asking people that trivia question and, and to name them, and they always they always miss Pat Dobson, right? They always yeah, as the fourth, yeah. like, Pom- as the fourth. Player, they, McNally and Dobson. They can name the other three, but they can't yep. name the fourth. Um, you know, you know, they'll scratch their heads. That, that's a phone to ask people. <laughs> right? A, Wally right. Bunker. Um, um, you know, they 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 just they can't. Yeah, you know, grow, growing up, like I said, as an, both an Orioles fan and an, and an Italian, we always compared it to. You know, you, you want to name your 420 winners Palmer and everybody gets, you know, the like you said, the three. It's like trying mm-hmm. you when you ask people, Benny, you might you, you'd appreciate this being a New York Jersey boy yourself. You know, you ask somebody to name the three tenors and it's, it's Pavarotti, Domingo and uh, the other guy. You know, yeah. there's always that there's always that other guy when you try and that, name. That's option was the Fredo was of it, the Orioles. Was it Placido Domingo? The third one? See, uh, well, I'm probably, I probably Pavarotti, Domingo and Carreras. Oh, okay. There we go. All right. Okay. But uh, but again, off topic with baseball and and fun stuff. So uh, back to the uh, back to the topic at hand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bob, <laughs> we we ask this question of everybody when we start the the interviews. You know, Benny always says the question is like a snowflake because everybody's different. We've gotten so many unique answers. So I want to start with you. Uh, start this with you as well. When did the wrestling bug bite you from a fan perspective, and who got you involved in liking wrestling? Nobody. I think I was about nine or 10 years old, maybe 11. And, you know, you watch cartoons on the weekends. And then one Sunday morning at 11 a.m., I noticed I'm from the Albany, New York area. And WRGB Channel 6 around 69 or 70 had a show called Championship Wrestling with Johnny Powers, which was Pedro Martinez's NWF. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they started they started to promote in Albany. They, they didn't do it for long. But they came into that region, and uh, it was Johnny Powers and Abdullah the Butcher and Kurt Von Hess and uh, Eric the Red and Little Admiral Osborne, and I got hooked. It was Jack Reynolds on the call and um, fell in love with the whole show. It's one of those I never missed an episode. They were only on for about a year and a half, two years. And then in 72 – I'm just showing how old I am, guys. 72 – I'm right there with you, don't worry. 
72 late in the year, all of a sudden on the same network or the same channel, I should say, at the same time, all of a sudden it was WWF came in. So I don't know if WWF took over the territory because I know they used the same promoter in Albany and the same venue in Albany. So, um, but it was originally that championship wrestling with Johnny Powers that got me going. George Crybaby Cannon, the Mongols, you know, the whole, that whole bunch, the whole Chief Cleveland Jay. bunch. Yeah, Ernie Ladd. Oh yeah, and uh, it was. Um, I it's I I always wax romantic about it. That was my first. I was old enough to kind of know what I was watching, and uh, you know, rooting for the good guy was a, was a blast when you're that young, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's that's how I got started. Nobody really. And my parents thought wrestling was dumb, and my brother didn't even watch it. So I was the only one in the family that looked at it. So um, that started, and it continued on with the WWF, and uh, I was off to the races. I always tell the story that um, I always had fights with my family as I turned 12 or 13 because they started going to church at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings and wrestling was on at that time. <laughs> and the battle began. Something told me to not miss wrestling. Something told me, you, you got to see this. And I was right, you know, because, you know, years later, I ended up working in the wrestling business. And if I, I honestly have always felt if I didn't have that knowledge base, at least for the East Coast that I had at that point, I never would have been hired. I never would have been able to write about wrestling in my older years. So I was right. I had a kind of a premonition about it. And I argued and fought and scratched and clawed. And eventually they let me stay home and watch the wrestling. And I guess the rest is history. So that, that that's, those are my origins, just simple television, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Nice. So Bob, speaking of writing, at, at what point did you decide that you did want to be a journalist and was it specifically wrestling? Did you think you wanted to write wrestling or, you know, just write, uh, you know, novels or things like that. Uh, no, I was a newspaper guy. Um, I ended up getting a newspaper, a totally, my whole life's been a giant fluke guys. I mean, it really has. Um, I was in retailing. I was a retail I was at the age of like 18, 19, 20. I was a retail store manager for record world, which was a record chain here on the oh, East yeah, Coast. I remember that. Okay. And, um, as it turns out, you know, I had had, journalism training in college and high school and somebody contacted me to actually, would you like to write a couple, couple articles for your hometown paper? I said, sure, just for fun, I'll do it. And they really liked it. So they ended up hiring me as, as kind of a freelancer, which led to a full-time job kind of learning news and learning news gathering and photography. And, and back then paste up everything. It was a small paper, but it, it was called the Catskill Daily Mail in my hometown. And um, I excelled at it. I actually wanted journalism more within six months of of uh, working here for a news article that I had done. So th one thing led to another. I eventually became sports editor of the paper. And the biggest break I think I ever got was Catskill, New York. You know who else was from Catskill, New York in the uh, early 80s? Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, yeah. Mike used to train directly across the street from our newspaper office. Oh, wow. You could literally just walk right across Main Street, bang. And it was the Catskill Boxing Club on the second floor of, I think, where the police station was. And I used to go up there all the time. I'd hang with these guys. And I had did an interview with Mike Tyson when he turned 20. He uh, had just turned pro. He was beating everybody. Remember, he used to fight once a month and beat beat these tomato cans up tomato for a while. Tomato can of the month. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, oh, it's around that, that it's around that period. I haven't heard in a while. Sorry, yeah. I didn't cut you off. So it's okay. I, and uh, so I end up uh, writing an uh, 
an interview with him. And I thought it was a kind of a throwaway. We put it in our weekend edition of the paper and it won a major journalism award. I couldn't believe wow. it. Wow. Yeah. The New York state newspaper publishes association award, which is, I mean, I go to this thing up in Albany, New York, and I'm standing next to uh, uh, George Vesey and all these other big names. They, four people won the sports writing award for that year. I was one of them. And you know, they separated us by uh, circulation. Of course, I was in the smallest circulation because <laughs> the, the Catskill newspaper only probably had a circulation of about 15,000. I'm serious. It was a small county. I, I don't know how many people, maybe, maybe 20,000 copies a day, something like that. But, for, you know, for the newspaper business, that's nothing. But in any event, um, I did good work. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, I was in my late 20s. I had um, aspirations to do a little better, make more money. So I went into the magazine world in New York City. And uh, this will lead right to about – should I go on and tell you how I got the job with PWI? Yeah, sure. Yeah, go for it. So, so, so I'm going into the city. I figured, you know, me and my ex-wife, we said, well, we could triple our incomes in like no time because Green County, Ulster County, just nobody's making any money. So we moved to the city and we find new jobs. And my job was, a, was a, an industry music newspaper called the uh, Pro Sound News, which I think still exists. I was writing about cables and <laughs> and electric musical equipment and stuff like that. It was just kind of like take a press release and make a news story out of it, that type of thing. Right, guys? But yeah. at that point, at that point, as I was just starting that new job, back then, if you can believe it, the New York Times had a help wanted section every Sunday. It was a whole section of the paper, if you can believe it, back then. And it usually had about three and a half pages of editorial jobs. So I always kept my eye on it, just kept my eye on it. And there it was, a two-line ad that said, and I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing, I think, but this is kind of like what it said. Editor slash writer wanted for sports entertainment pub, period. I said, that's wrestling sports. They were WWE was using sports entertainment at that point. It said, send resume clips to box, blah, 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 RBC, New York. I said, RBC. Rockville Center. That's Rockville Center. That's Pro Wrestling Illustrated. They also published uh, KO Magazine and Boxing Magazine. So I put together a resume, and there's my award-winning article. And I'll be dipped if I didn't get a call, like, within three days of sending it to them. Five days later, I had my interview. Six days later, I had a job full-time with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It was the biggest, I guess it was a pretty good sports writer because they took my small town work and considered it pretty good, you know? So it didn't, it didn't hurt that I had that journalism award and um, that got me in the door with PWI. I actually did boxing there in the beginning. I did, I think, four boxing articles and I helped after a range of photo shoot with Mike Tyson at that point, who was getting really famous at that, at that stage. And that's how I got in. But again, I had that knowledge base from being a, voracious tv re- watching wrestling fan at that point and by I, I, this was in 1988 when i got the job with pw pwi and i'll tell you at that point i was green as a pool table you know about a lot of the other wrestling and the you know i knew nwa i knew wcw and all the other stuff that was around at that point but um i think uh you know i i knew the pw stuff i knew the pwi stuff from reading it all those years you know i kind of the kayfabe articles a little bit of florid stuff in there you know it was just i i was really good at picking up the style of the magazines really quick and it was great 
is really Bill After, Stu Sachs, Craig Peters, the whole team there, Dave Rosenbaum, the whole Andy Rodriguez, the whole the whole mess of guys. We all got along famously and you know, I was the guy that wrote the first couple of Peterborough I five hundreds, which kind of people remember me for it to this day, I think, because they keep mentioning it in the magazine now. And uh it's real fluky, guys. I, you know, I'm really lucky. I, I don't know what else to say other than the pieces fell into a really nice, you know, the puzzle came together until 1993 when they announced they were selling the company and then I had to go find something else. Well, you know, it's funny because we talked about the magazines. It's come up a lot on the show where how many, you know, when I said everybody's intro to wrestling is different, everybody from that era always talks about running to the store and getting the magazines. Mm -hmm. But for our younger fans and viewers, it might be difficult to grasp the significance of wrestling magazines during the 50s all the way through, like you said, the 80s into the early 90s and then. Uh, a little later, pre-social media, I mean, wrestling magazines were, besides weekly television that you were talking about, the really the lifeblood of wrestling. Um, I'm quite interested in hearing what, uh, excuse me, in hearing what had to be really the enormous amount of work to put together a, an issue of the wrestling magazine. Particularly that company. GC London was, we were located in Rockville Center in Long Island, and we would put out, oh gosh, just off the top of my head, it was, the monthlies were... PWI, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler, Sports Review Wrestling, and then they had quarterlies, and then they had bi-monthlies, bi uh, probably about eight or nine different wrestling superstars, you know, just all this other stuff. They added a weekly newsletter after a while. So we had a staff of about three writers and two upper editors, plus Bill Apter, who was the glue of the whole company. If anybody ever tells you that he wasn't, he really was, because he was the conduit between um, the wrestling organizations, the wrestlers themselves, and our company. And Bill would collect photos that not only that he took, but our staff photographers would take, plus photographers around the country that were hired, you know, freelance to work for us. And when it was time to put out a new magazine, we'd all sit in a circle, and he would say, here's what we have, here's the angles that are going on, and we would just kind of exploit what, you, what we had gotten and made articles about, you know, what we knew about and the ratings and all that stuff. And I got, I got to do the ratings and stuff like that. It, let me tell you, for a fun job, it was a hard job, you know, cause we, we were hustling all the time, all the time. We put out a mound of product all the time. And, um, it, it could be hairy, you know, it wasn't always, you know, sweetness and light, but thanks. Thanks for the, <laughs> thankfully, because I knew so much about the territories at that point. And I got to know more about the territories because we were getting uh, videotape VHS tapes from, all over the country from all the federations uh from fans we did some tape trading we did some japan stuff you know it, it was like anybody else who was really really into wrestling except we were doing it professionally we're getting these tapes from all over the place so my knowledge base just exploded and uh, i got to do the ratings which was my favorite part of the job and um i guess what to get back to your original point uh dan um yeah if you heard bruno sammartino at the garden when he accepted his wwe hall of fame award mm -hmm. he said if it wasn't for the magazines he wouldn't have been so well known internationally you got to remember this is pre-cable pre-cell phones pre-electronic pre right, yeah. media the, the magazines were the number one way of learning about people from other territories because wrestling was territorial all the way back then 
I was actually actually just going to ask you to expand on that one a little bit. You know, also Benny, I mean, we've talked about it before, you know, especially with Bruno, there was that period where wrestlers were even more than baseball, football. They were some of not just rest like celebrities. They were some of the biggest stars period in the world. You could, you'd walk past an actor to go shake Bruno's hand. If you saw him on the street, you know, Oh gosh. But, first time um, I, I ever went to Manhattan in my life, I was probably about 17 years old. And I remember looking into the window of a barber shop and there was a signed photo of Bruno, you know, right behind the counter. He Bruno was beloved by the Italian American community. That's, that's yeah, a great word for it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really was. He he was held in the highest esteem because you know, say what you want about Bruno, but his believability factor was off the charts. Right. In that era, especially in the sixties too. I mean, my gosh, he was just he was just it. So um yeah, I just um, the the magazines were a great way to learn about people that you couldn't see. Like I read about Freddie Blassie long before I ever saw him in real Same life. Here. I read about yep. mm. Ivan Koloff before I ever saw him in real life. I read about you know, well, how about the Road War? Even in the it's in the nineties, the Road Warriors. People read about them in the magazines before they ever saw them. Most because they started right. out in in the Indies in Georgia, I think, and then exploded from there. So no, even even until about 1995, I think the wrestling magazines were really vital in fans learning about people they didn't have an opportunity to see. And it was the death of the territories and the explosion of cable TV that really changed everything, I think. You know, because then you could see stuff from all over the country. It was the same with MLB. We were talking about baseball before. Baseball had a different feel in the 70s because it was territorial. We didn't have mm-hmm. at the press of a right. button all 30 teams to watch. No MLB network. Right. Well, shoot, we didn't have cable networks. It, right. We were on exactly. Channel 9 yeah, and Channel 11 here in New York. Say, that's just in the WPIXWR. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but you see uh, the difference? In I one of your recent remember, podcasts, you were. Uh... Go ahead. I, no, I, I'm sorry. Um, I remember listening to games in the radio that weren't, weren't televised. We didn't get all 162 games, right guys? Yeah. I mean, it was, a I think it was WHN and WMCA. If my, my memory serves me right. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I, <laughs> I burned man, many a, a battery out on a transistor okay. radio under my pillow, you know, sneaking it into my bedroom. So I, I, I definitely get it. But, um, so Bob, in, in the, uh, <laughs> You were talking in your podcast about uh, the one of the, the legendary, I think, uh, territories, which is Portland, which was owned by uh, Don Owens. And you, you made a point of talking about the intimacy and how the fans got to know the wrestlers and, and vice versa. And we, we've had Bugsy McGraw on our show a couple of times, and he was talking about the loop in uh, Florida, which were and I, I think I have this right. Orlando Sunday, West Palm Monday, Tampa Tuesday, Miami Wednesday, Jacksonville Thursday. And then they had a. Uh, spot shows friday and saturday and they did this for years and years and i mean if they didn't sell out they usually had a hell of a crowd so uh, do you feel like something special was taken away from us the fans with the uh, with the death of the territories absolutely looked like crazy first of all every major city had a monthly wrestling card remember that or weekly in the case of Tampa or Memphis. Or bi-weekly, yeah. Right. At yeah. least bi-weekly, you're right. But you had regularly scheduled shows. Right. With your local favorites. And you're right, there was an intimacy about it. You knew them better than you knew anything else. 
you know, you would read in the magazines about some stars, but your local guys were your heroes. You know, those were the ones you really thought were the best wrestlers because that's what you saw. And you're right. I, I think when the territories faded and by gum in the end, they, they held on like crazy. Memphis held on and Jim Cornette did a great job with Smoky Mountain and Continental held on into the 93, 94, you know, but it was right around 93, 94 that it really started to whittle away, you know, and the cable, the big production cable shows took over. And now even here in New York today, you'll get your occasional garden show or they'll come to Brooklyn, you know, or Long Island. It's just not the same flavor. They're just passing through. Whereas in the old days, they would announce who was going to be on the next card at every monthly show. You were buying tickets. And a lot of, and a lot of, Excuse me. A lot of the matches would be set up with the matches you just saw. Like you would see feuds start in the arena level, as opposed to seeing angles on television. You know, right? And there's a continuity. Yeah. Like come back, come by next month, and you're going to see the return match of you know whoever it was. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You could have mini feuds that weren't necessarily shown on television. You'd have local feuds, and that that was cool. You know, it was you felt felt real felt like a sport back then <laughs> you know a lot more than it does now there's, there's another thing that changed it's it's so it's also slick now that i think a lot of the earthy um vibe that we used to get from wrestling you know when it, i remember two guys just walking in the ring no music just lights mm-hmm. over the low, lights over the ring and then ding ding here we go that was it yeah now, now it takes 20 minutes. I, I joke about this on the show, but it takes 20 minutes for the guys to walk down a ramp now. And yeah. that's part of the show, too. It, it's fans are conditioned to think, well, let's see him strut or let's see him dance to the music or right. gyrate to his theme song. Everybody's got a theme song, which has led to the most ridiculous thing in wrestling was like when someone's running out of the back to save somebody else in the ring. Here's his theme song playing. Come on. It, that is the dumbest thing that ever telegraphed how yeah, like, wrestling what do you is. What do you do? Like, you know, you walk up to the production director. Here, here's my theme song. I'm, I'm making a run in here in 30 seconds. Like, yeah. I don't know. My, my, my personal favorite is how many times I've seen them play the fired angle. You know, somebody gets fired, escorted out of the building by police or whatever. And then when they come back at the end of the night, they play the music. Like the sound guy is playing the music for someone who yeah. was just arrested an hour ago. Yeah. Like when you really think about what wrestling does today, another thing is the, you'll see a guy standing in the locker room and his tag team partner walks in. They're going to talk about match strategy in front of a camera. <laughs> we're supposed to think we're kind of eavesdropping on two people in secret. Right. That's what the producers of the show are making you think. I'm thinking there's an effing camera right there. The whole world is going to know your strategy. And the other dressing yeah. room probably has that, you know, can gets that, that yeah. broadcast. But again, we've all right. <laughs> but we've all been conditioned to this now. You know what I'm saying? It's like, right. yeah. Um, the showbiz is overtaking the sport aspect, and and if you're an old timer like me, you find it not satisfying. The the sizzle instead of the steak, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, exactly. Let Let me ask you a quick follow up because you 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 hit something that I. We, it's come up a lot on the show, and I want to get your opinion on it as a seasoned uh, wrestling observer. You, you talked about the the lights, that the wrestler comes out, the one spotlight over the ring. What do you think about the shift away from turning down house lights, where I'm watching wrestling on TV and I can see the crowd, even in cases of seeing half-empty arenas? Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Um, 
Well, I, I noticed W is kind of color color coding the house lights now. They're not off, but the fans will be in a blue tint or an orange tint. But you can still see them. You can you actually get reactions from the first few rows if you look really close at the fans. Um, they're they're emphasizing to me that the fans are part of the show. You know, the the experience rather than the wrestling and the wrestlers. It's like it's like when you go to an MLB ballpark. I hate to say this, some city feels sometimes feels like you're sitting inside a PlayStation Five. <laughs> you know, lights are swirling all over. Yeah. The music is ear splitting. You can't hear the announcements because you know there's there's a DJ playing in the background, and it's it, you feel like you're in the middle of a pinball machine sometimes. Yeah. I think that's the same vibe you get at, at a major league wrestling event now. It's the experience as opposed to what's going on in the ring. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does make but I get sense. The fact yeah, that's what they're selling. Sense. Let's all come and join together, WWE together, you know, whatever it is. Let's all come and have this joined experience, and you're part of the show. And no, wrestler fans should not be part of the show. The wrestlers should be part of the show. <laughs> that's just my two cents. I just keep it in the ring, you know. What, what more do you need? Right. The other day, they had a really good match on between Champa and, and um, Gunther. Right? Gunther, yes, very good match. Tremendous match, right? That's all you need. I was sit, sitting there at home thinking, and I had missed the show. I got in late and I turned on the TV and that's what was on. I went, this is all you need. What more do you need than two guys really going at it? I didn't even know if they were building a feud or what. All I know is it was great. It didn't need anything else. Yeah. I Everything is over-angled now. Everything has to be set up. Why? Just put two talented people in the ring and let them go. In, in in some respects, and I I hate to say this, I in my podcast that comes out this coming week, I kind of open. I have never said anything like this in public, but I can't stand the AEW. I can't take it anymore. I just I, I have no taste for it. It just doesn't work for me. I, that's all I'll say about it here. But I think AEW does a better job of just putting a couple people, dropping a couple guys in the ring and let them go. Sometimes, right? You know, w- without a giant build. Or somebody attacking somebody behind from behind or in the locker room or something like that. Seems if like I in WWE, it seems like oh, in WWE they they have to angle everything. Why? Isn't the wrestling good enough with, with the, all that talent? I, I think it may have something to do with the fans. You, you said you're kind of done with AEW. They had their big Wrestle Dream event uh, recently, which was you know just a random collection of matches, most of which didn't have stories. Uh, one of the matches on their pre-show, and I, I do encourage old school wrestling fans to check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, Josh Barnett and Claudio Castagnoli wrestled, and it was an old school, you know, hold submission kind of literal tumble mat. Like, you know, none of the, none of the, mm-hmm. uh, like a mat, it could have easily been Bachwinkle or Bruno in there. And the crowd, didn't know what to do. Like you could hear them. When do we cheer? What, what do we yell for? Like, this is, you know, bear hugs and, and leg locks and, and rolling. And, and the crowd, I, I think maybe part of the, the push for everything being a spectacle is because fans don't know what to do. If you give them an old school yeah. match, I mean, someone yeah. like a Gunther is, or, you know, you mentioned that him, I mean, he's had some of the best matches I've seen in years recently. Um, you know, where you, you still get the, the chop, you, the moment there's, there are, even though it's an old school feel, there are clear pops, you know, you, you go back and, and watch something back then. I don't know. It could be the fans. Who knows? 
everybody's conditioned. Like you just, you made a really good point there. They're conditioned. They don't know what to do when you see, well, wrestling. What do you do? I've heard fans boo side headlocks. Remember the side headlock was a staple of the beginning of every bout? Not to mention the referee stance and all that stuff. People get booed out of the building if they do that now. Oh, it's a rest hold. Oh, I get so sick of hearing that stuff. You know, I just do. Why can't they wrestle? I mean, it's what the marquee says. It still says that word, you know? Uh, yeah. The, the the great disappointment is remember when AEW was announced and they said we're going to be sports oriented or something like that. Yeah, sports well, based yes. presentation. Sports based. Well, I think the only thing they did in that regard is put one loss on the screen. Other than that, it was the same old over angled stuff you get anywhere else. So, um, I don't know what to say sometimes other than listen, there's stuff I really like today, even now. Believe it or not, I, I love the WWE women's division. I think that. They're, ter- sure. they're terrific. They're better than the men half the time. Well, most yeah. of the time. Um, and it's being done in the, in a, you know, the, the women are depicted as athletes as opposed to sex objects, which is another move forward. They're, they're beautiful, but they're beautiful because they're healthy and fit and they're athletic. That's why they right. look so good. And I, I think that they've put on some tremendous, I, Trish Stratus did a match with what uh, Becky Lynch a few weeks ago. Who expected that? It was really good. Yeah. So mm-hmm. again, little little lights go on. I like the LA night push. You know, I, I I just like he's so old school, he's fresh. You know, he yes, he's a lot like Steve Austin and those guys, but you know what? I think people have been waiting for that. So, you know, I, I pick and choose what I like and grip my teeth the rest of the time. And <laughs> but I again I will reemphasize this. I can't get angry at fans for liking what they see now because that's all they've seen. Right. You know, how, they don't have a reference point like you, like Benny and I might, you know, it, it's like we're older. Naturally, we have a different way of looking at things because we've experienced every phase of it throughout the decades. And some people have just discovered wrestling, you know, college kids and stuff like that. that that's, so that's, I, that's I, I can't I can't I can't lambast the fans. You you enjoy what you like and go buy a ticket to whatever you want to see, you know. Right. At least it's so, still wrestling. That, that's perfect segue into the next question. So if, you know, if I go on YouTube and I watch Ernie Ladd versus Silvano Souza, a match from the seventies, <laughs> you know, obviously from, from an athleticism standpoint, it pales in comparison to, to today's product yet. I mean, there was a very specific purpose for that match. You know, mm-hmm. if, if we, if we looked at it clinically, we'd say, no, technically it wasn't good at all, but yet we hung on every second of those matches because it was so real to us. And I, I think that's the difference is that, you know, you and I, when we went to uh, to an arena, I mean, my first show was in 1968. I saw Bruno versus Toro Tanaka. My heart was in my throat thinking that, you know, Bruno might lose that night. And I don't think anybody goes to a wrestling event now worrying if Roman Reigns loses or not. I, they're just they're going to have a good time and spend a lot of money. So I was just curious in your, your thoughts on the uh, the evolution of pro wrestling from then to now. I, I love this question. I'm a, I adore this question. And because people don't understand what they were, if, if somebody saw the tape of that match, Sousa versus Ladd, they wouldn't understand why it's happening. But that match obviously took place in a championship qualifying run for Ernie Ladd. The heels would come in from different territories. to the They, they had a formula in the WWF. The heels would come in from different territories and they'd beat 
the lowest guy on the totem pole, and then he'd beat a Silvana Souza, and then he would beat somebody with a little more skill. In the fourth match on television, they'd usually get some sort of win over a Dominic Danucci or Danucci, somebody you've heard yep. of, or Pete Sanchez or someone like that. Manuel Soto. And so, those, it's so, they were becoming contenders. That was the point of a guy like Ernie Ladd fighting Silvano Souza. They were building their way up the ladder to become earned championship qualifiers. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They don't even do that now. Now somebody attacks somebody behind the, the you know, in the locker room and there's a feud and they, they throw right. them in the ring. Well, how about the times in WWE now where two guys be yelling at each other outside and here comes, you know, Adam Pearson and go, you guys want to fight? Go ahead. So that means you can sanction a match at, at, at whim any moment. A championship match, no yeah, less. Like, what, what did you have scheduled for that time slot? Now you think you maybe yeah, good you point. Talk to yeah. Those people, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it it's it boggles the mind how nonsensical that stuff is. But in the day, a squash match, as they call them, served a purpose. It wasn't to make you know look at the three hundred pound light squashing this little guy. That wasn't the point of the match. The point of the match was to show off how mean and tough Ernie Laird was gradually over the course of several weeks until he became the number one contender for the championship. Even if they weren't contenders, you still had to get guys over. And the best way to do it is show off all their moves against a lesser skilled opponent. That's what a squash match was. I don't understand why people don't want to see a squash. Wouldn't you like to see a match where you can learn about the guy first? Learn what his moves are. Learn how fast or slow he is or how strong he is. Let's say an angel of Mosca comes in with territory and you've never seen him before. Why should he face somebody of his equal right off the bat? Why can't he earn his spot by showing off his skills? And I think that was the mindset of the old days. And that's why I, to this day, I still enjoy a good old videotape of squashes. I do. I watch them all the time. We, we had a, uh, well, I guess, Maybe about two months ago now, Benny, we actually had uh, Randy Hogan on the show, and the entire theme of the show was just talking about the importance of underneath guys, of squash matches, right. of people like that, and 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 not just hey, let's get you know John, you, you know you mentioned tomato cans earlier, Joe Joe bag of donuts, <laughs> and and feed them to somebody for for a you know and hope for the best. You also need underneath guys that can work and make your upcoming star look like a million bucks, which I mean, I may be a little biased, but um, that's one of the things I really respected when CM Punk came to AEW. He made it very clear. I'm going to work with these young guys. I'm going to work with the the underneath guys and build myself up. If he didn't just come in and day one, he's uh, main event title match. He was going to your Darby Allens and your Sean Deans and, and your your young up and comers, and he worked his way up the card and then got a title match, and then it, you know it, it felt organic. Versus, you know, I mean, I get it now with you know a John Cena or somebody just shows up at the end of a, the last two minutes of a pay per view, and a Monday Night Raw's main event is them for a title match. Like, you know, I get that a little, but but uh, I want to shift gears uh, a bit. You, you, you talk a lot about journalism, and I think we'd be journalistically irresponsible uh, if we didn't have you talk about your other career in music. Benny mentioned oh. in your intro, um, and, and I know uh, your podcast, your uh, Outdated Wrestling Hour podcast, you, you sang in a blues band for better part of 20 years uh, and have I mean, with four albums. Um, That's so, right. I mean, yeah. tell, yeah, tell, tell our listeners about this. And, and 
well, kind of a, you a know, spinoff to you that. Know what, you know what led me to, to, to uh, go after that stuff was PWI. PWI was um, in the verge of being sold. I, I, I could smell trouble at the office and I had jammed around Long Island for a long time and kind of built my name up with some people and assembled the band right about the point I was leaving the magazines. And, um, it was real good. It was really, I worked with people I had no business working with. I, I, it really worked out well. And one thing led to another. And our first album was produced by a famous musician named Larry Mitchell. By the way, my professional name is Robert Charles, not Bob Smith. I, I don't think Bob Smith would have went over. Charles was my dad's name. So I used his name as my last name okay. on stage. Um, so anyway, one thing led to another. And then, you know, I got a, a I put one album out independently, but managed to get national distribution for it and caught the ear of Duke Robillard, who's a famous blues musician from, he's the founder of Roomful of Blues. He worked with the fabulous Thunderbirds and stuff like that. He produced my third album, which got me out of the house of blues radio hour, which got me to the Chicago blues festival, which got me into this and that and the other thing. So it was my love of blues music, similar to my love of wrestling. I discovered it on TV one day when I was a kid. And it, you know, I was buying Grand Funk records and whatever the hard rock sounds were, Deep Purple, you know. And then I saw Muddy Waters on PBS and I went, what's this stuff? Changed oh. my whole outlook. Changed my whole outlook, I'm telling you. So um, another thing I got lucky at, we toured for the better part of 15 years, put out four albums, again, under the name Robert Charles. And they're all still in print somehow, which I'm really thrilled about. Every every two years or so, I get a royalty check, which is kind of cool, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah, ASCAP, thank you very much. But um, I wouldn't have traded a minute of it. We played Chicago Blues Festival twice. I was on the um, Chicago, what was it? Dan Aykroyd. Um, uh, what the heck is the name of the show? Oh, House of Blues Radio Hour. Oh, okay. I was on that show three times, interviewed by Dan Aykroyd on one of the shows, um, as Elwood Blues, of course. Um, did some cool stuff, and you know what? I don't regret you, a second. You played with BB King, didn't you, uh, Bob? I was on stage with BB King ten times, my friend. Wow! About about ten times, singing in a chair right alongside him. That is my opener of my Facebook page. The two of us performing together, and he was the greatest guy in the world. He really was. Not to mention my personal hero. He gave me so much advice. So much. Uh, it was just a wonderful thing to get to know him. Um. Blessing on top of blessing. He was a wonderful man. Most generous, most generous superstar I've ever met with his time with everybody. Not if you walked up to him, he would talk to you for 10 minutes. No cast system. Always a handshake. Always an autograph. Uh, probably 5 million people have a BB King autograph. Wow. He used to open up his tour bus to fans. If you can imagine. You imagine wow. that in this day and age? Yeah. You stand in line, get an autograph, and have a handshake? Right on his own tour bus. That's crazy. I'm telling you. And he, he he's a, a megastar. Benny, you don't even give 10 minutes to fans. I know. I can't. <laughs> I mean, you know, just it's not enough time. <laughs> but no, BB so King was a wonderful guy. Just And, you know, it was a great time. I, I stopped around 2009 because. How do I put this? I don't. It's kind of personal, but I got ready into some financial difficulty. I'll put it that way. I said, let me back off for a minute. And that minute has lasted till this moment I'm talking to you guys. I just decided not to go back to it. I've got a lot of lot of irons in the fire these days. And uh, um, I don't regret a second of those 15 years, though. It was wonderful. It was really great. I had a blast. 
Well, well, speaking of irons in the fire, one of the things I learned from your podcast about the uh, WFIA, the Wrestling Fans International Association, I was so intrigued by what you said uh, by your dialogue that I joined. And then once I visited the website, um, I actually thought, well, I want to be a part of this. So I actually uh, a couple of days ago was in my uh, actually was yesterday was in my first finance committee uh, meeting. And um, so if you could tell our listeners about this great organization and how they can participate and it's free to them. Well, you know what? I found it the same way you did. I mean, I was messing around on Facebook one day and there's the logo. I went, holy smokes. That's the same logo from the seventies. that used to be in the wrestling magazines. You know, the, the Kitesur magazines used to do ads for the WFAA. And I was a member way back in the way back in the day. And it was free back then. And I read the, the charter for it. And it's still free now. Anybody that wants to join it can join it. And I, the one thing I remember about the WFIA back in the 70s was it wasn't just fans. There were wrestlers that were in it. There were wrestling organizations that were part of it. You know, famous promoters got involved with it. It was kind of a consortium between a conduit between the fans and, and the wrestling business. And it looked the same. It smells the same. If you've seen the newsletters they put out, um, it's got the same tone to it. It looks like an old school wrestling magazine when you read the newsletter and stuff. It's great. Brad Drake um, is running it. And there's some people on the board that I know, like Rick Del Santo and uh, Dave Drayson, Brzezinski, and uh, a few other folks I know. How could I our, say no to that? Our good How could I say no Shire to it? as well? Yeah. How could I say no to this? It, it looked too good. So, um, and I'm, th- I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm just getting my feet wet with it the same way you are, Benny. I mean, I just discovered it as a total fluke. I got a membership card in the mail. Did you get yours? Not yet. No. They sent me this little cardboard, just like the old days. They sent me this cardboard membership card saying, congratulations. Welcome to the WFIA. You remember good standing. You're number 188 or something like that. Well, how cool is this? It's that, I'm, yeah. I'm 11 years I'm 11 years old again. Same thing. When I actually I'd hear the the clink of our metal mailbox on the side of our house, and my sister and I would fight to get the mail because there might <laughs> actually be something good in it for us. I mean, mm-hmm. how nowadays you know I'm getting uh, asked for prepaid prepaid cremations, so that, that would be a welcome <laughs> yeah, relief. <geez. laughs> oh yeah, I'm get I'm getting the Medicare come on now. Everybody wants to sell me, you know, Medicaid advantage, Medicare Advantage or something. I'm like, no thanks. I, I, I'm not on Medicare, by the way, so I'm I'm lucky in that regard. But uh, um, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting I'm outdated. I'm getting all the old man stuff in the mail every day, man. I can yeah, count I, on. I, I hear you loud and clear. So, Bob, <laughs> one, one thing the three of us having is in common is our love for baseball. And as we sit here right now. One of us has a team in the playoffs, and the other two are chanting the proverbial uh, "wait till next year." And so, um, although I'm a diehard Yankee fan, the actual the first time I, game I ever went to was at Shea. It was August 4th, 1964, Mets versus Giants. Uh, Mets lost four to three in 14 innings, bringing their record to an amazing uh, 34 and 74. And you know, I, I looked up the box score. I, I can't even think of the names, the the website that I, I went to, but. You can actually any any season in history you can have you can look at the, the 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 box scores on a daily basis which I absolutely love and so I went back and looked at the box score and uh, the Giants had five Hall of Famers to play that played in that game it was Mays McCovey Cepeda Gaylord Perry and actually believe it or not Duke Snyder who I think I believe that was his last season uh, in the major leagues was a, a pinch hitter for the Giants nobody for the Mets except for Casey of course. Mm-hmm. It's in Cooper's tent. So um, I love hearing baseball stories. 
as much as I do wrestling stories. Do you remember your first game? Yeah, 1969. Uh, I'm in upstate New York, and the family drove to Shea Stadium, and I remember uh, seeing Bobby File play second base. He was a little known 69 minute. Yes, that's right. PF, right. Number one, yeah. right? Number one. Yeah, number one. Holy smokes, you're yeah. right. And it was all so bigger than life to me. Actually, I don't remember a whole lot of the game per se because I was so little that we were sitting in field level seats. You didn't, I didn't have a good view. I had tall people in front of me. So, but I remember the second game better because we were up in the stands, like in the loge or something like that, or, or the mezzanine. That's when I really discovered the magic of early my kids baseball and we used to go with little league and stuff like that they'd send buses down and i love sitting up high because the place was you know you see your first big green grass baseball stadium it's like it's 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 a moment you always go whoa you know it's when amazing kid, when, whoa. Yeah, we didn't uh we didn't have color tv like in the in 64 and so mm-hmm. like when i walked up the ramp and saw the field i had never seen it like that before it was it was right. absolutely breathtaking like you said Oh, Yankee Stadium too. They're yeah, like cathedrals. They were, they were, yeah. And I didn't care how dumpy Shea was. Shea was dumpy for the minute it opened. To be honest with you. Right. But, but um, it was. It was. There was a featureless, modern ballpark with no amenities. <laughs> let's, let's face it. The place started crumbling. Did you know the day they opened Shea Stadium, they were still working on it? I think that's they were seeing the outfield fence, sure. and yeah. they weren't. And you know that the the park, you know, it was like a horseshoe. It was originally supposed to be in the round. They just never finished it. Oh. <laughs> it's true. It, it, it would have looked a little more like Three Rivers and stuff, you know, the stadium and, and the Cincinnati Stadium. No, from what I understand, Urban Legend has it. They just decided, well, we're going to stop here because yeah, we, <laughs> we spent enough money. <laughs> but that was my that was my home. I knew every nook and cranny of Shea Stadium. I knew how to get half price tickets. The last two rows of both the mezzanine and the loge were lower priced than every other seat. Because they were considered obstructive view, you couldn't see the the score. I used to buy them all the time. It's a great view of the field. You just didn't see the scoreboard. So I, you know, watch the outfielders. So I could go for half price. I even did that scheme during the playoffs, and it worked. Because nobody wanted those seats because they were obstructed. Supposedly, nah, you could see just fine. Oh, so yeah. I spent, well, spent much more money, much more time at Shea than I than I should admit to. Nothing but good memories, man. I I love that place. I just yeah. did. Everybody loves your hometown park. You know, and I really loved that joint. As crumbling and nasty as it was, you know, it was uh, it was my dump. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Well, you know the uh, the old legend of uh, <laughs> Barry and Jimmy Hoffa at the stadium. I, I think that <laughs> I think the fact that that Shea's famous horseshoe is just because they never got around to making it a circle is my new favorite stadium story uh, you look look that one up i'm almost certain that that is the case they just decided not to finish it i'll be in a uh be being an orioles fan you know we all can't have stadiums as gorgeous and perfect as camden yards so hey Only just dr- tell me boogs just tell me boogs is still there let's tell you what boogs i'm barbecue? sorry boogs oh, barbecue yeah. is it still there? yes yeah yeah that's the goods right there <laughs> yeah, the, the um Good, good barbecue, and there's a. Uh, I'm sure it's probably family owned at this point because there's there's no way the old man that used to he had the, the the cart looked like a cement mixer, and he would roast his own peanuts outside the stadium. You know, mm-hmm. you get a big bag of roasted peanuts for I guess back then it was five bucks. It's probably like thirty now, but 
you know, that was, I'd always carry my big, big bag of, cause they let you, if you bought it out in the mezzanine outside, they let you carry it through the turnstile, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'd get, I'd get that giant bag of roasted peanuts, go watch the Orioles. I at least love doing that. Well, gosh, you know what I used to love? Benny, you could probably, I think Yankee Stadium is very similar. Remember how outside the stadium they used to have the, you know, the team's vendors would be outside the stadium yes, selling buttons oh, and yeah. pennants. Oh, it was magic to me was a little kid, you know, when you went. Those little seventy-five cent buttons of you know Wayne Garrett or whatever, you know, it it was it was magical to me. It was like um and, and, and a yearbook was a prized possession. And a yearbook, seventy-five cents, yeah, yeah. My brother always, my brother at one point had every Met yearbook I think from sixty-two to current. To be honest, he may still wow. he, he might still Amazing. have them all. I, I bet he does. I think he does. And but those were the days, you know. It's like everything was so much simpler. You didn't have to mortgage your house for a hot dog back then, you know, because <laughs> I'll tell you, food prices at the MLB stadiums now, it's like eating at fine dining in Manhattan. It's crazy. Well, you know, it's, it's really funny, Bob. One of the things I did, and it was, I think it was in 68 and 69, both years, I somehow got the addresses of all the uh, training sites in Florida, Arizona and California. So I hand wrote, I think it was like 28 letters, you know, to each each team. And said, you know, I'd like, you know, I like the chances of your team or, you know, I like this player on your team. And you could not believe. And again, we went back to like how how special it was to get mail back then. I can't tell you how many like, you know, some like some sent a a program guide, a couple sent a yearbook, some sent stickers, you know, a couple teams just sent a letter. It, it, It was amazing getting all this stuff in the mail. Oh, yeah. That envelope with the official name yes. of the, the team. On, just the envelope, right, guys? Even the, the envelope. It's like, wow, like, you know, this, this is great. This came direct from my team. You know, that's a feeling as a kid. But, oh, man, you're bringing back memories, Jack. I'm telling you. That was that was the goods. The, that, yeah, but, oh, too good. Benny's, Benny's told me those stories before. He, he listened for the Wells Fargo wagon to come through town because, you know. Yeah, I had, a, I had a, like, run, keep pace with the stagecoach, right? <laughs> get get your get your mail from the Pony Express, right? No. no, those were the good old days. They really were. I I pine for those days. I, I well, it's just everything. You know that the feeling of stuff being larger in life. We talk about wrestling in that regard as well. It doesn't feel that way anymore. I don't know if it's just from being a jaded old fart now, but and it's sad, I, I just, like, I just even, miss even, the feeling of being in awe like that, you know? Right. Even like walking, like in my case, walking home from junior high school, right after I start, first started collecting magazines. So that, that would have been late 68, early 69. And uh, walking into the luncheonette in, in the Bi-County Shopping Center. And I knew exactly where he kept the magazines. And just mm-hmm. that feeling when you saw that magazine that just came out that you didn't have yet. I, I right. was broke for years, but I didn't really care because I had what I wanted. Let me – how much fun was it, guys, to be a teenager, you know, maybe 11 to 16 years old, and meeting up with your friend and going to the newsstand? Like in my hometown, we had a newsstand in a diner. So we used to pick out Inside Wrestling or, or Wrestling World or whatever wrestling – and we would sit and eat our cheeseburgers and – Oh, this Greg Valentine in this picture. And this is me. And my buddies would do that all the time because they would let us bring them to the tables. Just awesome memories. That, that, that sense of camaraderie. And back then, wrestling, I always say, felt it wasn't mainstream then. So it felt like you were no, part of a secret society. Right. It was, you felt like you were part of a secret society. 
You had those right? kids it's in a wrestling high school. Fan. You had the kids in school who were the wrestling fans, and like they all congregated, and you know, so mm-hmm. we could chat about wrestling in secret. And then when a jock walked by, we we changed the uh, the conversation to the uh, fillet of haddock at the uh, and, and you know at the cafeteria. <laughs> but that's you're absolutely right. It was like being part of a little mini secret society. The wrestling was. fans, you would go to the matches, but you wouldn't talk about them no. randomly to students the next day. Right. You would, you know what I'm saying? It was different. The whole vibe of wrestling was different back then. And that's and oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, 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 it's I can't describe it. It's so different now. You know, there's nothing like that now. Now it's like bring your kids, bring your babies. I just talked about this on my podcast. You're, I'm going to say it to you. The thing that disturbs me more than anything else I have ever seen in wrestling, and I mean this. You know this little film they show at the beginning of every WWE show. It says together. You know. Yes. And now forever together. At the end, they showed this guy, just a split second of this, bouncing what appears to be a joyous, chortling baby. Wrestling ain't for babies. You know? What are you doing bringing an infant to a wrestling match? I'm serious about this. Wrestling, the very basis of pro wrestling is, you know, violence. You've got a skirmish for some, you got a disagreement, we're going to beat the hell out of each other. We're going to hit each other with chairs. We're going to slam each other through tables. You're bringing your baby to see this? Are you serious? I'm not a prude. I'm not a censor. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying I don't get the mindset of that at all. 11, 12 years old, sure. Bring anybody you want to a wrestling match. But babies? Right. Really? Well, and especially- you know what? If you, if you can bring a baby to a wrestling match, it ain't good wrestling. That's my two cents on it. Uh, it you know, it bothers me. It makes no sense to me. Wrestling should be its own animal. It shouldn't be Disney. Right. Disney and tights, right? <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It makes it's it's just, well, it's, it's, like it goes that. against the entire grain of everything I ever felt about professional wrestling. It's just it. I mean, especially considering how expensive a, tri- a night out to the wrestling shows are now. Why would you bring a child young enough to not remember? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my Man. God. I looked at I looked at. What they put on sale about a month ago? WrestleMania, right? In yeah, Philadelphia. in Philly, yep. right? Yeah. Did you see those ticket prices? Front, front yes. row tickets were anywhere between four and eleven thousand dollars, depending on which package you were getting. My God. <laughs> you know, oh, um, yo, but the VIP package—you get to keep your chair. If I'm paying eight grand for that ticket, that chair better carry me home. You got that you know, going for you. Which paint is my first house time I- and the show's over. First time I ever saw a live professional wrestling match was at the Washington Avenue Armory in Albany, New York, and the ringside seat was four dollars, and they sold it to you out of a cigar box. <laughs> there you go. For real, guys, for real. The tickets were in the cigar box, and the change was in the cigar box. I well, you hear that expression about a podunk business? They sold well, it out well, of Bob, a cigar how about box. This? They like, sold that out of a cigar box. Back in the day, like when I went to, because I I was you know I was kind of both a Met and a Yankee fan, so uh, the the Huntington Mall. Uh, Macy's in the back, the very back. I can still remember it clear as day, but there was a, a, like a customer service desk. And then there was a, a bunch of like almost like mail slots and they all had tickets to the Mets games. And, you you know, you you actually could buy a ticket, a hard, you know, a paper ticket from, you know, from that back room at Macy's. And just like once you had those tickets in your hand, just I remember just looking at them and I, I have a ticket to a baseball game. It was like it was solid gold. Yes. You know what? You know what? The first ticket I ever bought away from Shea 
I remember Ticketron. Yes. The precursor to Ticketmaster. Yep. I think the first Met ticket I ever bought when I was old enough to drive said Ticketron on it. And they would only sell you certain sections of the ballpark. They wouldn't sell you anything you wanted, but like not like it is now. Mm-hmm. And then did you guys just leave me? No, there you are. I'm sorry. My screen went blank for a second. Forgive Uh-oh. me for that. Um, yeah, there's nothing like that feeling, you know, right? Look what I got. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man, it's like a sense of achievement somehow. <laughs> uh, you see, but there it is. The, the, yeah. We weren't jaded, right, Benny? We weren't jaded about anything back then. It's a different. It was a different feeling. No, and, and I mean, all you thought about, like you counted down the days to to like that game, and that's all you thought mm-hmm. about, and you know, yeah. and and it wasn't even a case of the the anticipation was better than the real thing. The real thing was just as good as the anticipation. Absolutely, absolutely right. It it you know, and I felt that way about wrestling too. I'd go see these these cards where they just had a main event, and then they had a bunch of jobbers in the first four matches. I never left disappointed. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the difference. Because the way people look at wrestling is different. Now, like I said, you were looking good guy, bad guy, looking for some action. Now everybody's sitting there booking the match along with the company. You know, it's it's a whole different vibe. Yeah. It's a whole different feel. Um, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I know what I liked. Yeah, we, we never talked about school. we never talked about Chief J Strongbow's work rate in, in high school. I don't remember ever doing that. Chief- Doggone it. Chief J. Strongbow was over. He was huge. Number two baby huge. face. Huge. Yes. Number two. I, 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 you know what? You know, his, his spot was taken over by Snooka in the 80s. Same, same deal. They used to bust Strongbow open on TV every three weeks. Yeah. He's, he's scream and bleed and, and then so, doing a soft-spoken And everybody, everybody he's, he's turned get on this him. Guy. Yes. Everybody turned on him. Yep. Because he was, he was, he was, he was a strange character when you think about it. Yeah. Remember how he used to like, you know, chant and he, he, he was a quiet, soft-spoken guy until you busted him open and then he'd turn into a maniac, which was great. He was great in that regard. Really good actor in that regard. Yeah. So I don't want to hear nothing about his work rate. I know that he was huge. I know that he could main event. I know that he He was over, over, over. People want to rewrite history. Strongbow earned his spot. He, oh yeah. He, from the minute he became Chief J. Strongbow, remember he was he was Joe Scarborough oh, in the past. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I don't know if it was Vince Senior or whoever redubbed him, but you know what? I've never seen anybody more over than Chief J. Strongbow. Yeah. I'll, I, and you you can quote me on that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially in the early seventies. My goodness, just and you know if you want if you want to lambast him in the eighties, fine. Maybe he hung out a little too long. My favorite wrestler of all time, Baron Mikel Cicluna. I know he hung on too long. Oh, now we're talking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. then yeah, I get so tired. I've defended him on Facebook so many times because you know, the too. minute I see Baron Cicluna and Jobber, it's like, you need to do your homework. You know, when, when Cicluna came to the WWF in 1966, he was, I mean, he actually wrestled Bruno. I think it was like a 28 minute match. And he actually, he had Bruno and his finisher, which was the hangman's hold. And right. I guess Bruno, in his struggle to escape, kicked the referee, and the referee disqualified disqualified Cicluna. But I mean, this is how big this guy was back then, and people mm-hmm. don't realize. You know, he he homesteaded like Johnny Rods did, you know, like like uh, Dominic did, where you know at right. the end of their career they're putting everybody over. But don't don't Baron Cicluna was a a force back in the day. You know, he was a 
world champion for Jim Barnett in 68 in Australia. Yeah, he was, yeah. Uh, him and Dominic was on, on many occasions. And did you and, know that um, there is a video on YouTube from 1967 Japan? It's, it's, um, Takluna and Victor Rivera taking on Inoki, and I can't remember the, the, his partner, another Japanese star. In one of the falls, Takluna pinned Inoki. Oh, wow. And you can look it up right now. Yeah. So don't, was, tell me that that he, don't tell me that he wasn't a big deal for a long time. Now, let's face it. I think he was a big deal from his creation in 1965 when he came to, I think Vince Sr. called him Baron Takluna. Right. Um, until about probably 74. Now, that's a nice run. Most wrestlers work 15 years. So he just happened to work 25. He hung around for a long, long but, while. But, yeah, and the thing to keep in mind is he wasn't a young guy when he came to the no, WWF. Even when he, was, he was already yeah. like 37 years old. I mean, when you see a yeah. Baron Sakluna match in, the, in 1982, you're watching a 53-year-old guy. Yeah. And you know what? What a physique for a guy his age. Yeah, he was still in great shape. It's like, like Bob Winkle, naturally, you know, lean and mean. You know, Very he's athletic, just one of yeah. those guys. Yeah. So, he, yeah, I think he's the most underrated. Uh, you know what? I, I think my opinion is changed. I always thought Sakluna's underrated. The most underrated WWF guy was Johnny Rods, who oh, could absolutely. go. No Johnny argument. Rods was as good as anybody I've ever seen. He was aerial, he could fight, great facials, great energy. I do not understand why he never got a bigger push. Maybe you know, he's slightly undersized or something, but I don't understand it. Uh, my first, and I've said this story before, my first WTF moment in wrestling. So when I guess it was about 75, 76, Channel 41 from uh, Patterson, WXTV, mm-hmm. started uh, carrying the NWA Hollywood, wrestling from the Olympic. And I see this guy, and they introduced him as Java Rook. And I'm thinking like that looks just like <laughs> that looks just like Johnny Ross. Holy crap! And then I look at his boots, and it's the same Jr. boots. I said, "But how could that be?" And I was so confused and so conflicted. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I do believe, and Davey O'Hannon has said this too, that Vince McMahon, if he wanted to test anybody to see what they had, he put them up against Johnny Rods. Yep. I, uh, Sonny mm-hmm. Blaze told me that too. Sonny Blaze kind of hinted that Johnny was an enforcer. When guys got a little big for their britches, they'd feed him to Johnny Rods. Yeah, I believe yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Good as it, good as it got. He's Absolutely. always entertaining. Always. It, it, if you're looking to enjoy yourself at a wrestling match, did you ever see a bad Johnny Rods match? No. And, no. I mean, I don't know why they call him unpredictable because he was very predictable. I mean, his match, every match was going to be excellent. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was very predictable. Even, even losing on television. Oh, yeah. He made it an yeah. art form. He really and he's did. a hell of a he's, nice guy, too. You know, I yeah, he came to our offices once at PWI. It was a thrill for me. Uh, I don't know. After, people come and visit After all the time. Let me, let me make that clear. Bill After was the conduit between professional wrestling world and our offices. You know, you never know who's going to come in. Uh, Johnny Rods, Mark Lewin, Victor Rivera came in. Um, Mel Mascaris. Kerry Von Erich, star after star. You never know who's going to show up. in my. So it made the job kind of fun in that regard, you know. Just wandering yeah. in off the street, coming, going out to lunch with Bill, you know. Good stuff. I'm sure the uh, internet fans and YouTube fans will, will correct us if I'm wrong, but somebody mentioned, you were talking about the transition. Somebody mentioned uh, just what? 
couple of days ago, I was I, I saw it online that John Cena hasn't won a singles match on television since 2018. He's wow. I mean, he's won a bunch of tag matches and stuff like that. But every mm-hmm. time they're putting him against somebody, it's to elevate the next talent. Could you imagine somebody, you know, like Benny was talking about somebody coming into wrestling now and being like, oh, yeah, that John Cena, that guy was such a jobber. Like they never did anything with him, you know, to, to how that would sound yeah. to the modern wrestling fan is what we hear when people and when we had him on the show, our very first guest, when, when people talk about, oh, Dominic DiNucci, like like what what a, what a curtain jerker, like, whoa, time out. You know, you, yeah. you're, you're catching the wrong end of that career, you know. So many guys, so many guys get mischaracterized, like Tony Gurria. Well, he wasn't that popular. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. They just happened to do salt and pepper shaker tag teams in the WWE. If you ever noticed, the the face teams were always two handsome young men, and the heel teams were match sets. Samoans, Executioners, Yukon Lumberjacks. Blackjacks, yeah. Moondogs, yeah. Blackjacks. The, everything was a match set. I Like I said, the, the tag team division was always salt and pepper shakers. And it got a little samey after a while, you know. It, it wasn't yeah. enough individual personalities. Like they know all the heel teams would have, have Albano as their manager, and they never said anything. Executioners, there's another one. You know, it's it's like bang, 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 bang. Same same guy twice. <laughs> I I that was one thing I never really appreciated about the old WWF is the way they handled the tag movie. It was the same thing all the time. Right. Guerrilla and Zabisco, Guerrilla and Martel, Guerrilla and the only. Green, believe it or not, Haystacks Calhoun. Do you know they were they were champions at one point? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the greatest one of the great TV matches I've ever seen, based on the way the I saw that and I remember it like it was yesterday. At the end of that match, um, they I guess they beat Fuji and Tanaka, and Haystacks did the splash and pinned one of them, and Gria stood on Haystacks' back and put his fist in the air as the pin was being made. And the place went unglued. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it on television before or since. Wow. After, after the match, um, you saw the crowd rush the ring in jubilation. Like, you just saw a real thing. Everybody was at ringside. Afterwards, McMahon is standing there with a – they went to a commercial break. After they came back, McMahon is standing there with fans around him. You never saw this. They look like all college-age guys. And they were like, these fans are really excited, aren't you? And the fans went – yeah, they were ecstatic that finally those nasty Japanese guys got beat by right. our favorite guys. Yeah, that was magic, man. Those fans bought every second of what they were looking at. I they missed hung, that too. They hung on I every really second. missed that. I Myself missed included. that. That's yeah. the best, absolute best way to have it. Benny, we've come to the end of another long conversation, and I feel like we could talk for the end till the end of the week and not cover everything. It seems like we do that all the time. Um, Bob will definitely have to have you back on. Benny will reach out to you. We'll get you back on. And by then, I mean, we'll be talking about maybe Baltimore being world series champions. Who knows, but, uh, (laughs) or, or, or how badly the Braves beat him in the series. One of the two, but, um, you know, I, I appreciate it. But before we let you go, we mentioned it a few times, uh, your, your podcast, you're very active on social media. I'll give you uh, any chance to plug anything you want. Well, first of all, let me just thank you guys for I, I've, you know, when I got to know Benny through social media, like a lot of us do in wrestling these days, and the fact that you would even have me on your show, considering the, the great line of people you've had on this show, I consider it a privilege to be here, and I want to thank you for that. Right. Um. Um. Yeah. Um. 
really easy to find. It's the outdated wrestling hour. Our, our slogan is all new, all old. And uh, we're on every podcast platform, including, uh, I guess I just read somewhere that Google Podcast is going to stop next year. We just lost Stitcher. Now Google is going by the wayside. But we're at oh, okay. every platform I can think of. Um, if you want to find out more about it, it's outdatedwrestlinghour.buzzsprout.com is our website. You find me on Facebook. I'm the one that sings with BB King. We talked about that before. That's my lead page there. And I'll leave it at that. I, I'm doing more. And if you want to write to us, we're at outdatedwrestling at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we're not hard to find. Um, the show has been exceeding my expe- expectations tenfold. I started in January after I got the bums rush off the Rizzy show. And... Um, which, which is another story for another time, but um, yeah, we gotta hear that. I, next time. it was a blessing in disguise. You know, I started this thing. I don't know. I got a wild hair up my butt. I started it just because I didn't feel like stopping podcasting, and it has exceeded my expectations a hundred times over. I'm having a blast. I, I know you guys must be too. Um, the people oh, you yeah. meet, the community, we're all part of. Oh, it's, it's, it's surreal. You can't sometimes. beat it. You cannot no, beat it. I, not. I am getting together with people I haven't seen in literally 30 years. This year. I saw Apter. I haven't seen him in ages. I'm going to see Craig Peters in November. I mean, we haven't been in the same room together since God knows how long. So it it has been wonderful. And the fans have been great. I can't believe how well I've done so quick, so fast. It's it's tremendous. I don't know what else to say, but if you haven't heard the show, if you like um, this show, Dan and Benny in the Ring, try mine. I think you'll find it a nice adjunct to our uh, nostalgia as it were. I, I can vouch for that. I like mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. And again, I mean, uh, you know, like you said, you're active on social media. You've got four out musical albums still in circulation. I'm sure mm-hmm. most of our listeners have read, uh, whether they realized it or not, have read something in one of the magazines that I'm sure you've contributed to. Uh, we can't thank you enough, not just for being on the show and giving us your time. I know you're, you're busy, but also, I mean, to, the contributions behind the scenes, because Benny, it seems, and I, he'll agree with me on this one. We bring up wrestling magazines probably more than we try and sneak baseball into this show. It comes up all the time. Sure. And, you know, you, you talked about, you know, your friends going, uh, our, we didn't have a dedicated newsstand, but there was a news section of the AMP, which was the a grocery store near where, near where I lived. Uh, some of our younger viewers probably have never heard of that place either, but, uh, I have. Yeah, well, I said younger viewers, Ben. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but but uh, you know, and, and that was it. The, the magazines, and this is just so awesome. And wrestling's done a lot, and I appreciate it again for having us. Um, your podcast, like you said, anywhere podcasts can be listened to. Uh, you you got to check them out, Bob Smith. Thank you again so much. So for Bob Smith, for the original Long Island Ice B Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spasciano. Dan and Benny in the Ring can be heard anywhere podcasts can be listened to. And again, thank you to our friends, Monty and the Pharaoh on YouTube. Uh, You have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.